you can stand with me, I would appreciate it if you would stand. Turn with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes here, starting in verse 12, down through 19, and supports his argument that says, you know, Christ was raised from the dead. And if he wasn't, here's what life would look like. Here's how we would be most pitied of all people if Jesus had not raised from the dead. So starting in verse 12, down to verse 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God, that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray. Father, as we study through this text this morning, help our minds to be convinced of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Help our hearts to be convinced. And Father, not just that it's a mind thing or a heart thing, but that because of the resurrection, because Jesus is alive, we have hope for a future. We sang this morning of wanting to uh, be in the New Jerusalem, to, to run the streets where the angels have trod. That's only possible if Jesus has raised from the dead. We talked about meeting on that shore in, in the sweet by and by. That was only possible if Jesus was raised from the dead. And so help us have our mind and heart, soul convinced of this truth so that we have hope for a future with you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Just this year, uh, three days before Easter, 2013, Marianne Boudet, Bishop of the Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C., wrote the following on her blog. Someone once asked me if I thought the resurrection was necessary. He meant it in the most sincere way as a person of both faith and doubt who wondered if we needed to be bound by so unreasonable a proposition that Jesus' tomb was, in fact, empty on that first Easter morning. I hesitated in answering because there seemed to be layers of argument behind the question. My answer was, yes, resurrection is the foundation of Christian faith, but probably not in the way he meant it. To say that resurrection is essential doesn't mean that if someone were to discover a tomb with Jesus' remains in it, that the entire enterprise would come crashing down. She writes, The truth is that we don't know what happened to Jesus after his death. 
any more than we can know what will happen to us. What we do know from the stories handed down is how Jesus' followers experienced his resurrection. What we know is how we experience resurrection ourselves. She goes on to say that the resurrection is an experience that touches where we live, but it does not have to be grounded in the belief that the tomb where Jesus laid is empty. In short, it's a denial of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those kinds of words really shouldn't be shocking because it's the same lie that's been packaged and repackaged for some 2,000 years now, handed down. But what should be shocking, at least what's shocking to me about this story and anyone who holds to a position that says uh, that there's no resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily, is that that leads to the conclusion then that there's also no hope in the life to come. Listen to the hopelessness in what she writes. The truth is that we don't know what happened to Jesus after his death any more than we can know what will happen to us. How do you preach that at a funeral? (laughs) Pastor, what, what happens to grandma now when we cover her grave? I don't know. Pastor, is my child safe in the arms of Jesus? I don't know. I don't know what happens to us after this. How does that give any hope? To deny the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Jesus is to knock the feet right out of Christianity. It's to to destroy the entire system of Christianity. Because salvation is not complete without the resurrection of the body. If you remember... Um, back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did, what did God say? Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely, what? Die, right? Now, spiritually, they died immediately. Physically, they died eventually after a number of years. But he says, if you eat of this fruit, you will die. Now, every one of us has been, has been handed down to us the nature of Adam. We all will die because our forefathers ate of the fruit and we ourselves sin. None of us are without excuse. So in order for salvation to be complete, in order for God to have total victory over sin and death, not only does he have to be able to revive the human spirit to give him spiritual life, but he also has to renew the the human body. Think about it like this. 1 John 3, 8 says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, if God could only save the human soul and not resurrect the body, then we would say that God was victorious. God had power over 95% of what Satan destroyed, but Satan gets 5%. He killed the body. It it stays in the grave. Is that enough for God? God's answer would be no. God is going to be 100% victorious over sin and death. So that involves recreating the human soul. That involves recreating the human body. God is not going to give any ground to Satan whatsoever. 
So there has to be a bodily resurrection. The body has to be renewed. That's why the Apostle Paul is writing this chapter. Because there were a group of people going around in this church saying, you know, when people die, their souls will go on to heaven, but the body really is of no use. In fact, the body is somewhat evil. They, they bought into this Gnostic idea that matter is evil, and so they said, the body is evil. You want to be done away with the body. Let the human spirit go on to heaven, but that body, you can just leave it behind in the grave. And Paul's coming along in this chapter and saying, that's absolutely not true. Yes, the human soul will go on to meet its creator, but the human body will one day resurrect as well, and the two will come together and live in the presence of God. That's that's why Paul's writing this letter in this chapter to to dispute and to dispel that rumor that's going around in this church. I've been watching a, a documentary lately about World War II, fascinating documentary, about the ideas that were at battle during this war. I didn't know this, uh, but when the Nazis rose to power, at one point they invaded Italy and they occupied the city of Rome. It was very symbolic for Hitler to own and to occupy the city of Rome because he loved the Roman way of thinking. Hitler was mesmerized by the philosophy of the Romans because in his mind, Romans had the pinnacle of power and Romans were known for their conquest of the land. Both things that Hitler wanted. Hitler wanted the supreme power and he wanted to have conquest of all of the land. And so Hitler really desired to occupy Rome because it was symbolic then of everything that he wanted for himself. He would take his troops after they had invaded and and occupied Rome. He would take his troops and he would march them around the Colosseum. Kind of an act of saying, we're here, we own, we're powerful, look at us. He took the the architecture of Rome and he used that architecture uh, to construct his Nazi party grounds. And many of the buildings that the Nazis uh, had their meetings in looked like the Roman buildings of old. And what was neat about this was that when the Allies came in and they began to fight against the Nazis, Winston Churchill recognized the symbolism and the significance of the Nazi occupation of Rome. He said, if the war is ever to be won, we will have to regain Rome. So the Allies began bombing into Rome, and on June 4th, 1944, the city was freed from German occupation. And symbolically, it was the beginning of the end for Hitler. It wasn't long after that that the Nazi party crumbled and Hitler himself committed suicide. In much the same way, the bodily resurrection of Jesus stands as the heartbeat of Christianity. In Hitler's mind, Rome was the heartbeat of Christianity. And once that heartbeat had been taken away from him, his demise was quick thereafter. The bodily resurrection is the heartbeat of Christianity. And if Satan can attack that and destroy that, then it isn't long afterwards that the demise of Christianity comes. Satan knows that. He's after that heartbeat. 
the bodily resurrection of Christians. So Paul's going to lay this out. He's going to say, Corinthians, I want to show you why this is so important. Logically, I want you to think through this because if there is no bodily resurrection, then there are seven consequences immediately that happen in the life of a believer. Consequence number one starts in verses 12 and 13. If there is no resurrection of the body, then first things first, not even Christ has been raised. Okay, look at verse 12 and 13. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Verse 13. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, you remember that when Jesus walked on the earth, he was both 100% God and he was 100% man. In that resurrection of the dead, Jesus, the man, the body, had to be raised. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Paul says, logically, Jesus didn't raise from the dead. But he's just spent 11 verses at the beginning of this chapter showing the Corinthians why Jesus has been raised from the dead and how there's proof. He said there was over 500 people saw Jesus in one place. He said, besides that, you recall that Jesus came into the to the room where the disciples were hiding. And when he was in the room, what did he do? He took some fish and he took some bread and he ate it. Now, because he was a body, because he was human, he could consume that fish and that bread. What did Paul tell Thomas? He said, touch me right here where the nails were. Put your hand in my side. Well, Thomas couldn't have done that if there wasn't a body that he could touch, that he could feel. You remember when Jesus came out of the grave and and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there? When they saw Jesus, uh, the, the scriptures say that Mary Magdalene fell down and grabbed hold of his feet. Now, you can't grab hold of feet unless there's feet there to grab hold of. And Paul is simply saying, for 11 verses at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus really did raise from the dead. People saw him. He ate. They touched him. He was very much alive. So, Corinthians, if there is no resurrection from the dead, consequence number one is, not even Jesus is raised from the dead. And that would be enough. If that were the only consequence, that would be enough. But there's more. Consequence number two. If there is no resurrection, then our preaching is in vain. Look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The word there means to be empty. It means to be of no substance. It means it's it's nothing but gibberish. I remember when I first came to Providence, one of the things that we would do I don't remember. One of the Wednesday nights out of the month, we would go down to the Emerald House. Some of you would go along. We would go down to the Emerald House and we would sing uh, for the residents there. And sometimes there would be a, a number of residents that would come out. There would be 10, 15 of them. And then other nights that we'd go down there, there may only be two or three uh, that came out there. Well, on this one particular night when we were there, uh, there were only about two or three residents that came out. And there were only about six of us. And we sang for all we were worth, um, but we weren't a professional band, okay? I'll tell you that much, all right? Uh, so we, we sang, uh, and, and these two or three residents, they just kind of sat there, you know, arms folded, and, and uh, listened, 
nicely, politely to the first song that we sang. And when the first song was over, this little white-haired lady with a blue tint uh, in her wheelchair, she looked up, somewhat agitated, and said, well, this is a fizzle. (laughs) And she took her wheelchair and she went back to her room. She wheeled off. (laughs) I still laugh about that. It's so hilarious. Friend, if there is no resurrection, then every sermon we preach is a fizzle. It's empty. It's of no substance. It's worthless. It won't save. It's a repetition of foolish ideas. It's self-righteousness that has this puff of hot air behind it. But in the end, it's meaningless. It's nothing. And if our preaching is in vain... This verse goes on to say that it will lead to a faith that is in vain. How does denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus make our faith vain, empty, useless, pointless? Well, there's at least three ways. Number one, it means we worship a dead leader. If if there is no bodily resurrection and Jesus did not raise from the dead, then that means we worship a leader who's still in the ground somewhere over there in the Middle East. We'd be just like every other false religion in the world. If that were the case, worshiping a dead leader. Secondly, if Jesus has not been raised, if there is no bodily resurrection from the dead, our faith is in vain because prophecy is unfulfilled. Jesus said... I will destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. What was he talking about? He was talking about his body. He said, I'm going I'm to destroy this temple. This body is going to die and in three days it's going to raise again. If it did not raise again in three days, then that prophecy is unfulfilled. That means the promises of God did not come true in Jesus Christ. So if that one didn't come true then how do I have any confidence that any other promise of God would come true? And thirdly, if Jesus didn't come out of the grave, then Jesus did not have the power to conquer death. And if he, as the firstborn among many brethren, did not have the power to conquer death, then guess who else doesn't have the power to conquer death? Me and you. Me and you. It would be a vain faith. Worthless. We do all this for nothing if Jesus had not raised from the dead. There's a fourth consequence if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, if there is no bodily resurrection, and that is we make God out to be a liar. Look at verses 15 and 16. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. To misrepresent someone means to lie, right? If I misrepresent you, then I lie about you. Paul is simply saying this. If we deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus, then we are lying about God because we have said, the Bible has said, that God raised Jesus on the third day. And if he didn't raise, then basically we're saying God's a liar. We're lying about God. What's the gospel message? The gospel message is that Jesus rose from the dead. 
Why did he raise from the dead? Because he died for sin. Why did he die for sin? Because we're sinners. And we need someone to take the punishment for us. And so Jesus lived a perfect life. He died for sin. And then on the third day, he rose again. And the gospel message says, if you will in faith believe that, repent of your sins, then you can be saved. It's a wonderful message of hope and truth. Romans 8.1, many of you haven't memorized. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But here's the deal. That peace and that hope and that joy is contingent on what? The fact that Jesus raised from the dead. We can't be in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, if he's still dead somewhere. So if God did not raise Jesus from the dead, then we've just made God out to be a liar. By the way, anybody who denies the bodily resurrection of the Lord becomes a witness against God. You understand that, right? If we say there is no bodily resurrection, then we are testifying, we're witnessing that God is a liar because the scriptures say that God raised him from the dead. I find it ironic, and I think you should too, that those kind men and women who come knock on your door and they're dressed in a white shirt, usually with a black tie, and they call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses, they deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I find that ironic that the very people who their name says they are Jehovah's Witnesses actually become witnesses against God because they deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's ironic. You're either representing God or you're misrepresenting God. You're either telling the truth about God or you're lying about God. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then we lie about God because we tell people God raised him from the dead. Paul continues to hammer away at this. There's fifth and sixth consequences in verse 17 it says this if christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then also all those who have fallen asleep have perished back in verse 15 paul says your faith is in vain here he uses a different word and he says your faith is futile futile means it it lacks in result Okay, it means that it did not accomplish what it was supposed to accomplish. Your faith in Jesus Christ is supposed to bring you the forgiveness of sins, but it's futile, it's void, it's, it's useless if it didn't do that. If, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then there's no way he can forgive you for your sin because he didn't conquer sin. Therefore, you remain in your sin. Do you see the connection? Do you see the logic? Paul says, there can be no forgiveness of sin until the penalty is paid. God said, if, if men sin, men die. And if men die and are not raised again from the dead like Jesus, then the penalty is not finished. Maybe think about it like this. How do we know that when Jesus died for our sin, that it was enough. How do we know that Jesus dying for our sin satisfied the requirements of God? How do we know that? 
Well, we can only know that because Jesus raised again. Had Jesus just stayed in the grave, we would be left wondering if his payment was enough. There's a glimpse of that in the New Testament. It comes in Luke chapter 24. It's a, it's a picture of two disciples walking on a road to Emmaus. It's a couple days after, three days, I guess, after the death of Jesus. They don't know that he's raised from the dead yet. Now notice the picture here, and I'm going to read a portion of Luke 24, and I want you to picture in your mind these two disciples heading down to the road, of, road to Emmaus, and all they know at this point is that this guy who they thought was the Messiah is dead. He's buried back there in the tomb. That's all they know at this point. Here's what the, how the story goes. Jesus walks up to them, and they don't recognize him. He doesn't disclose himself to them. And Jesus said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And I would say, if that would be me and you, we would be looking sad as well. Because there's no hope. The Messiah is dead. The guy that you put all of your trust in was brutally murdered on a cross pulled down from the tree and he's laying in a grave. You'd look sad too. I would too. All of our eggs in one basket, gone. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they answered, concerning Jesus of Nazareth a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it's been the third day since these things have happened. Here are these two men, knowing their leader was dead, knowing that all of the faith that they had put in Jesus was gone, it was empty, it appeared to be useless, and they were absolutely miserable. All of their hope had been dashed when Jesus was killed and buried. Friends, probably the greatest misery in all of life would be the misery of not knowing whether or not your sins had been forgiven. And as long as Jesus laid in the grave, no one knew for sure, is this enough? Is this enough? It wasn't until God raised him from the dead that now we have proof that the wrath is over. God raised him from the dead and set him at the right hand of his throne. And because of that, we can say, praise the Lord. The penalty was paid. It's over. There's this Jesus. God is happy. God is satisfied with the payment of Jesus Christ. It was only when he was raised. So Paul said, had there been no bodily resurrection, you today would be living a hopeless life, a miserable life. Because if Jesus wasn't enough to pay the penalty of sin, then that leaves all of the responsibility on your shoulders. And I don't know a single person in this room this morning that can raise a hand and say, I have never sinned. I'm perfect. None of us. 
we'd all be doomed. Last consequence, verse 18. If there is no resurrection, then our loved ones have perished. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. When the Bible talks about people falling asleep, it's a nice way of saying that they've died. Today, we say that they've passed on or or they've gone to be with the Lord. Paul's word that he would use of a believer is that they fell asleep. That was a kind way of saying they passed away. If Jesus had not raised from the dead, then Jesus had not defeated sin. Sin would have been the victor. And if sin is the victor and not Jesus, then every person who's died stands before the throne of God and God says, sorry, sin has not been defeated. Sin has not been paid for. Your sin is still on your shoulders. Bye-bye, you're off to hell. That could be his only response if Jesus had not resurrected from the dead. Now, catch the implication here. If Jesus had not resurrected from the dead, then that means every funeral I have ever preached in this church has been a farce. That means every time I have stood at a graveside and told a family, this is not the end, your loved one is in heaven now, it was a big fat lie if Jesus had not resurrected from the dead. I would have deceived that family in the worst possible way. It would all be hot air if Jesus had not risen from the dead. That leads to some shocking conclusions. Think about this. That would mean if Jesus had not resurrected from the dead and every person who stood before God was condemned, that means hell is occupied by Peter, Paul, James, Stephen, John, Luke, Martin Luther, Conrad Grable, Mendel Simons, every martyr, every missionary, every pastor, every mother, every father, every child that's ever died in all of the universe stands in hell today if Jesus has not raised from the dead. There's no one to pay the penalty. It's the only outcome. It's a hellish notion. Friends, if there is no resurrection from the dead, bodily resurrection from the dead, then we are a people most to be pitied. Because we put all of our faith there. We put all of our hope there. If Jesus hasn't raised from the dead, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, like Solomon said, because there's nothing left. This is the best life we have if Jesus hasn't raised from the dead. We might as well use our bodies in any way we want. And you can see from that statement I just made, the logical outcome of someone who says there is no bodily resurrection from the dead. I can use this body however I want. It's going to stay in the grave anyway. But if Jesus raised from the dead, then guess what? Our bodies will raise from the dead too. And that means one day there'll be a judgment. One day you and I will stand before God. And to those who have believed in his son, who have had faith in his son, who have sought repentance, who have been forgiven by his son, and today live and honor him, to those he will say, enter into the blessedness of heaven, to the bliss of heaven. And for those who have not repented of their sin, who don't believe in Jesus Christ, who have lived life however they wanted, regardless of the laws of God, to those he will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. 
and he'll throw them into utter and eternal condemnation into the very depths of hell. Do you see how fundamental this truth is? If Satan can get that one, then he's going to have a lot of people joining him for the party in hell, isn't he? We've got to defend this doctrine because it means everything to us as a Christian. Our faith hinges on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So what's the answer? Did he raise from the dead or did he not? Look at verse 20. Paul answers it. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And we say, hallelujah. He has raised from the dead. And because he's raised from the dead, there is hope. Our faith is grounded in truth. We do have something to look forward to. There's not hell to anticipate. There's heaven to anticipate if we believe in Jesus Christ. The question for you today is this. How will you respond to the message of the resurrection? Do you believe in it? Do you believe it to be true? Because if you do, it affects how you live here and now. There's only three responses. If someone says, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? There's only three responses, and they're all found in Acts 17. Paul describes them all. Number one, when Paul was speaking and it says they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. <laughs> Garbage. They dismissed it. Utter rubbish. Nonsense. Secondly, others said, we will hear you again on this matter. They didn't accept it yet. They were still kind of wobbling on the fence. They were curious, weren't ready to commit yet. And the third group said, some men joined him and believed. I hope you're in that third group. I was asking myself this morning, even as I was in my office praying before a service start, I thought, you know, one of the things I always like to do in, in any sermon is to answer the question, so what? Right? Every good preacher is supposed to answer the question, so what? You preach a sermon, and then you're supposed to say, so what? What does that mean for me today? I would say this. The so what is, is, is this. If Jesus raised from the dead, that means I have a life worth living. And I have a hope of a home in heaven that's glory will far outweigh anything on this earth. And so when I hit times in my life, when I think as a parent, I can't take this anymore. <laughs> my kids are more than I can handle. Or this has been a day that exceeds anything I signed up for when I signed up to be a dad, one of the things that I can hinge my hope on is the fact that in heaven, all of this will be worth it. I'm training my children, I'm encouraging my children in a faith that I have so that one day, hopefully, they'll have that same faith and they'll join me in heaven and together in heaven, there'll be no more tears and there'll be no more pain. There are days when my wife and I, much like your spouse and you, wonder years ago did I make the right decision when I said I do <laughs> maybe this was a bad idea it's on days like that when you can say you know what because Jesus raised from the dead I have a hope of a life with him 
Because Jesus raised from the dead, one day I'll be with this spouse in heaven. There'll be no more pain. We'll have no more fights. And so that gives me courage. It gives me the oomph that I need to say, you know what, that's what it's going to be like there. Now, then God's calling me by faith to live that out now. And so I'm going to forgive my spouse, much like God forgave me. I'm going to work with my spouse. You, you could apply that in a number of different ways. So the so what is, friends, we've got something wonderful to look forward to. Wonderful. And we hinge our hope on that because Jesus raised from the dead that causes me to live today in a way that brings him glory and honor and praise. Would you bow your heads with me for just a second? <clears throat> I just want to ask you a couple questions and then we'll close. Keep your heads bowed. Do you want to believe in Jesus Christ today? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Do you by faith say, you know what, I do believe that. I do trust that God did what he said he was going to do. I do believe that Jesus lives in heaven today. I do believe that Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. And I do believe that God is calling me to repent of my sin. If that's you, if you say, you know what, for the very first time, I want to confess Jesus as my Lord and I want to believe on him with all my heart. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? Let me know that. Amen. Amen. I want to pray for you this morning. Father God, I'm so thankful for the truth of your word. I'm so thankful that the consequences that Paul has laid out here have not come true because Jesus has, in fact, raised from the dead. Father, that our faith is not futile, that our faith is not in vain, that our loved ones that have passed on before us that believed in you are are accepted by you. They're in heaven with you. Father, I'm thankful that we no longer have to live in our sin because you've raised and you've conquered sin. Your son has defeated sin. Father, I'm so thankful for this, and I pray that that fact, that resurrection fact of Jesus Christ will drive our behavior, will cause us to act and speak and have attitudes today that reflect the things that are happening in heaven already because we have faith that one day we'll join you there. God, I pray that we would be heavenly minded as Paul talks about in Colossians, that we would set our minds on things above and not on the things of this earth because it's in heaven above where Jesus sits and intercedes on our behalf. Father, for those who have raised their hands this morning, I just pray a special blessing on them that they believe in your son, Jesus Christ. They trust him. They, they believe in the resurrection. They, they desire to know you. They desire to walk alongside you. Father, I thank you that you're still in the business of changing hearts and, and converting people and calling folks to yourself. Father, I pray that they would feel the sweet relief of your forgiveness they would walk out of this room almost feeling like this weight has been lifted off because they feel themselves caught up by the Spirit, bound up in your Son, Jesus Christ. Why? 
because you raised him from the dead. I thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.